You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 106 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you from the Library Pros studio on Long Island, New York. Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and now Instagram. Please tell your friends and colleagues about our podcast because it's you, the listener, who helps this podcast grow. So today joining us is Aaron Whitfield. Aaron has spent a lifetime creating positive change, inspiring others, and building positive relationships throughout the communities he served. Having spent his career as an educator, library professional, and youth development specialist, Aaron has a Excuse me. Aaron has invested his skills, talents, and passions directly into the lives of those he meets. He believes that each day is an opportunity to create a positive impact on the lives of others. He's been featured on PBS's Broad and High, discussing, and I can't wait to talk about this later, Mufalai LLC. And he's worked at Ohio State University, Boys and Girls Clubs of Columbus, Kip Journey Academy, and the Columbus Metropolitan Library System, creating youth-centered programming. He's even he even has a podcast called the semi social, the semi social life of a black introvert. So, Aaron, dude, it is is so exciting to have you on the podcast. Welcome. No, thank you so much. Uh, I, you know, I appreciate you too for allowing me to be here. I look forward to uh, conversation centered on library topics, and um, you know, just to let you know and everybody in the audience know I am an open book. Sorry for the pun, but I'm an open book. <laughs> That's awesome. So with a list of credits that's as long as you have, do you actually sleep? Like what motivates you to start your day every day? Because that would like overwhelm me having all that, all that stuff going on. You know, I'm learning. I'm, I'm soon to turn 40 and I'm learning how to sleep. Uh, you know, children will make you go to sleep whether you want to or not. At this age, I will fall asleep on the couch um, if I don't, you know, pay attention uh, too much. But I'm learning t- how to rest, but also learning how to, um, you know, work with the things uh, that I have on my plate. You know, it, it's a busy life. Life is busy. Um, and so many different activities, so many different um, avenues of creativity uh, that exist within my life. But time management and being intentional each day um, really wakes me up. I wake up, to be honest with you. Really honest, I wake up looking to be impactful with people, uh, but also wanting to be impacted by people. And so that's what really keeps me going, um, you know, using moments uh, to create the momentum in my life. That's so cool. Aaron, I want to know what time you actually wake up in the morning. 5.15 a.m. because my son. He was an early guy because they get stuff done. So take notes. Well, he (laughs) was. I'm not waking up. 515 because I want to or because my body's ever said to wake up at 515. My son has to be at the bus on the bus at 630 a.m. Okay. So it's always the kids. I know my kids have to be on at 715. So yeah, we're yep. at 530. Yep. I'm at 620 because yep. I gotta drive my kid to school. Whew. Yeah, I'm not a morning person, but hey, we'll figure it out a year 39. And Sue like noon, right? Nine o'clock, like I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> So it, se- it seems that your career has been spread across so many areas of our profession and from working and mentoring uh, K through 12 kids, uh, college students, and even podcasting and being featured on a PBS program. So 
which of these projects are still ongoing and which, if any, have reached the, the end of life? You know, I, th- I think all these projects, you know, even though I'm currently not um, working at a library um, or, um, you know, in, in jobs sort of come and go, most of my jobs are community focused and community uh, centered. Um, so that's the ongoing. I believe in community. I believe in building um, community amongst a diverse array of people. And so whether I'm working in Ohio State with college I call them college kids, but college youth or young adults uh, working at the library or even currently what I'm doing right now um, as the director of diversity, equity and inclusion at the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. Uh, my goal is to bring people together uh, and to highlight uh, similarities while honor differences uh, that we have. That way we can create community. I believe in a diverse community. So all of them are all, you know, they're all ongoing um, within their own uh, respect. So with all that you do, what do you do for fun? Like, I mean, your days are packed, I'm sure. And I'm sure, and Bob and I, you know, subscribe to this philosophy that family is at the center of everything you do. Uh, you have two kids. I've got two. Bob has three, you know, and being married. And, you know, we're going to get into the 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 Mufali later, but because we can't forget about that. But, you know, so what does a fun day look like for you? A, a fun day involves uh, spending time with the kids and family, um, you know, as they're growing up and as I'm growing older, um, being able to appreciate the moments of each day, whether it's going to a basketball game and seeing my kids play basketball, just being amazed that they're out there um, and, and, um, and remembering when they were babies, I was holding them in my arms. You know, it, it, it's the moments in each day in which uh, I find fun, um, joy, um, and, and, you know, happiness. And, you know, I, I don't do anything too major. Um, you know, I, I'm soon to travel next week going to Mexico. and that, That's going to be fun and enjoyable. But really, it's a day-to-day. Um, sitting down and watching a movie with, with the family hanging out and just being and in, in, in seen as, as a person, as a father, as a husband, as a son, as an uncle with my family. You know, those are the things I really enjoy, um, you know, here in year 39 of my life. And I can definitely agree with that between being a dad and uncle and all that stuff. You know, at the end of the day, you may be tired, but, you know, you do get energy from from the kids, regardless of what kind of mood they're in or if they're making fun of you, calling you old or ugly or whatever. Cause I get that every day. <laughs> and it, it, it wouldn't be love if they didn't give it to you. You know, it, it's, it's that connection family, me grounded. Um, and, and, and they also humble me. <laughs> so if I, if I ever walk around with a big head, I can guarantee family will bring that down, uh, free of charge. Right at the knees. Right. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we're going to chat with Aaron about some of the great things that he is doing and has done uh, in the practice of librarianship and beyond. So we will be right back.
And we're back here on the Library Pros podcast with our guest, Aaron Whitfield. All right. So we have to talk about you being featured on PBS. That must have been so exciting. Tell us about that. Yeah, that occurred within my first uh, four weeks on the job uh, working at the Columbus Metropolitan Library System as a homework help specialist, uh, which was a position at the time. And um, it was wonderful. You know, it, it, I didn't know the job. Uh, the ins and outs, um, you know, there in week four or whatever, week five, whatever it was. But I I, I believe that the uh, broad and high, A, a focus on the community uh, and the beautiful, diverse community that served the young kids uh, who are now grown adults, uh, you know, featured on that. It's just amazing. But it it showed my heart for community. Um, And in in many ways, when I go back and watch that, and I had a whole bunch of hair in that one. Aaron was definitely featured, but, but it showed, it shows the foundations, you know, it, it reminded me, we built something special. We built community. We built family. Uh, we built love, um, respect based upon that foundation that was featured on broad and high. So, um, I hold that a high regard, but also shed a tear because I had so much hair, um, you know, back, <laughs> but, um, uh, that was super exciting and, you know, and definitely an honor uh, to be a part of that part uh, of that um, uh, Broad and High program. So tell us about Mufalai, which stands for Music, Fashion and Life, uh, because it sounds like a philosophy or maybe it's even a state of mind that you created. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it, it goes back to when um, I was in um, high school. And if you looked at my book bag, yeah, I had books. Um, but I will always have a music magazine. Um, I will always have a fashion magazine. Sometimes the two will blend. And I was always, I always had a black notebook that I still carried to this, to this day, uh, which I would write uh, my life. Um, and and, and um, one of my talents is that I am a songwriter. You know, I can write music, especially hip hop music, uh, rap songs. I don't like the term rap songs, but lyrics. Uh, and poetry. Uh, and I've been doing that for over 39 now, nearly 30 years. Um, and so um, that's where the life aspect uh, comes into it. I write my life, I write uh, what I'm going through, whether I was 14 or 39 now. And so uh, music, fashion, life, those are the three things that I hold on to. Um, every day I listen to my music. Every day I get dressed intentionally, mostly every day, intentionally for work. I want to look good. Uh, so that I feel good, um, and that helps me approach life. Um, some days it's good, some days it's bad, but it, but it's it's life, and and I'm appreciative of having life um, here at 39. You know what I really love about that philosophy too is it's a philosophy that you lived by for so long, right? And it's I don't even know if philosophy is the way right way to describe it. It's almost like a state of mind because I I had heard you talk about it um, on another podcast where you were like. Look, I'm always going to dress, you know, I'm always going to be wearing something snazzy. And even if it's a hoodie, it doesn't matter. It's going to mean something. And you talked about, and this really struck me, how music is so personal, whether it's somebody else's work or whether it's your personal work, how how it's personal to you and how it moves you and how it can change mm-hmm. your mood or affect your mood for the day. And, you know, yeah. that was really poignant to me. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, fashion. I I am uh, as I said, you know, with the podcast, I'm a black introvert. I am I'm not a wallflower, but I'm definitely not in the center of the room either. Even though oftentimes I have positions uh, in which I have to, in some ways, at times, be in the center of the room. But fashion is a way in which I can express myself, um, where I may not do it as much verbally. I want someone to see. Um, you know, how I, how the pants I'm wearing today are different from the pants I'm wearing yesterday and how they each tell a story of where, wherever I am in that moment. Um, so whether I'm wearing a, a suit as I wore today or a hoodie or velvet pants or Jordans or whatever it may be, um, you know, each piece that I wear is, is a piece of me. And, um, and that's how, you know, I use fashion, um, you know, each and every day of my life. It's almost like an expression, right? Yep. It's, it's an expression. It's, 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 um, it's art. You know, I can't draw. I can't, I can't even doodle. Um, but I can express myself artistically and creatively through clothing. Um, and, you know, to be honest, there was a time where I couldn't afford nice clothing, especially in my early 20s. But now that I can, now that I can, I, I can afford some pieces um, that, that, that I love whatever's in my closet. I love if it's, if I don't love it, I'm not going to wear it. And so if I could wear some pieces that I love, um, and it just makes me feel good, uh, each and every day, um, or adds to that. And so, you know, I, I, when I get dressed, I look at that almost as my superhero outfit. Um, I, I put it on, I get ready to take on the world. So I got to ask you the follow-up question. What music moves you not not your own music but the music you would listen to like if you're going to go on spotify and you're going to make an aaron woodfield playlist what's going to be on that playlist it's going to be everything um ranging from uh sam cook to j cole to um uh my gosh uh sam cook j cole kendrick lamar to um red hot chili peppers to Jimi hendrix um, in the pandemic, I, I learned how to appreciate jazz. Um, and so, yeah, it, I, I felt like I was bombarded with so many thoughts and words in the pandemic. So I, I went back and uh, my father gave me some of his records and um, and, I, and I started listening to jazz and just the, the tempo and the and the emotions spoken when words aren't there. And so, um, but really all types of music speaks to me because music and lyrics and creativity and art, they're, they're just human expression and, um, you know, many things I could just relate to. Yeah, I feel you there. I discovered jazz in the last couple of years and it's just, it, it just, it blows you away because it can, it can literally lower your blood pressure. Yes. It, it it takes you to a place. Music can take you to a place. There's a uh, there's an album that I want uh, that I want to shout out, um, and it's by um, Mark Lomax the second, um, and it is called Four Hundred an African Epic. I believe that that's what it's called the the title. And what he did, he took um, he is a uh, music professor um, uh, formerly at Ohio State, and he took the sounds of what he studied of Africa in 1692 as a drummer, he created songs that, that's that in his heart and his interpretation sound like 1692 and and, and then created tracks that stretch across into 
2019, I believe. Um, and so it's, it's telling the, the story of African, African-Americans um, from the motherland to the transatlantic sl slave trade to civil rights to where we are now. It's a beautiful piece um, that just takes you on a journey. So shout out to that album. Yeah, definitely. And I will put that in the show notes, too. Absolutely. I'm going to check that out. So something that Bob and I talk about all the time is the power of positive work culture. And we were talking about it off mic before. Um, it's something that can sometimes seem elusive, whether it's library land or just in, you know, just the general workforce. You know, knowing, you know, I know something that we all dream of and, and strive for is for that that harmony at work. Right. So can you share how we can create a positive workplace environment? Because I know you're inspired by love, faith, and humanity. And I, Bob and I feel exactly the same way. Um, you know, and, and where I work as a manager, I want everyone to feel like they belong first and foremost, because how many times have we worked in a place where we didn't fit in, right? Yeah. No, I, I think you hit on the head. Belonging is so key. Um, uh, being able to show up for work and, and, and feel like you're a part of something that you're accepted within the group and that you are, um, and that you're you're a piece of purpose. You know, I think positive work culture involves community. It involves feeling like, uh, um, hey, if I'm going to spend forty hours a week here, this is my extended family. This is my work family. This is these are um, friends. These are colleagues. These are acquaintances. These are people that I enjoy to be around. Um, but I think you know to add to that a bit having a work culture in which in which purpose is highlighted more than position or maybe on an equal footing as position i i, I don't like it when um i think in our society we're so position focused um we have to get the job position but what's your purpose i always ask my my employees how can i help you achieve your purpose and so we can have some purpose-filled conversations at work and and um you know intertwine that with community i think that's what creates a positive work culture in which you're working for something more than just that paycheck and let's be honest the paychecks often aren't enough they're not enough and so if you can work for something greater than a paycheck and focus more so on community investment along with that paycheck i think that's when you have a um a work culture that is worth showing to uh, showing up to each and every day it just makes so much sense it, to to be to feel like you belong with this group of people, you know, because I mean, I know I've been in jobs where it's like, I'm the outsider. How do I become not the outsider? And sometimes it's easy yeah. and sometimes it's really hard. Yeah. No, these, the work, sometimes the work cultures cause, uh, they want to melt you down to within their values as opposed to celebrating, um, the diversity that exists within the, the actual work or, uh, office or whatever, wherever you may be, um, celebrating, uh, the differences, celebrating uh, who you are as an individual, um, assimilation can kill work culture. And so why not celebrate the diversity? Why not, uh, you know, highlight inclusivity um, as you do and, and, and uh, you know, help put people in positions to win, um, not just to survive, not just to exist, but positions to win each and every day. <clears throat> so, Aaron, keeping with the theme of having that workspace be comfortable. Uh, one thing we can't control is the chaos theory of what happens when you open the door to the library. 
So you don't know who is going to walk through the door and if they are bringing love or chaos. Um, and some of those are staff and, and some of those are public, right? Mm, uh, yeah. So how do you counsel coworkers who struggle with people who come in with a bag of stuff and tend to take it out on you? And I'll bring it one step further. How do you counsel coworkers that have coworkers that bring in bags of stuff and tend to take it out on you? So that's a two-part question, I think. <laughs> yeah. Here, um, being the ear to listen, um, but also, you know, being the the eyes to acknowledge someone's presence, uh, you know, in, in and letting people know, like, I, I see you, I value your presence, and now you have my ear to listen. And if you want my words of counsel, you know, hey, I, I can do that too. But I think being, being acknowledged is so key within the workplace. And uh, when it comes to resolving cultures, uh, resolving, resolving conflict, um, because sometimes when we enter into conflict, we feel like we have to fight it alone. Um, and that can lead to a disgruntled employee and just a harsh workplace. And so, you know, I, I try to be a person, um, and I can always improve on this, but I try to be a person that acknowledges um, the individual, whoever I'm sort of, uh, you know, facing, whether they be in, uh, whether they're in a conquering moment or they're in chaos. Um, I want to acknowledge them, see them, uh, but also lend them the best of me uh, to hopefully help them work through the conflict. Kindness is is such a simple word, but such a hard concept. And, yeah. you know, when you're a manager, you know, managing people or, you know, a supervisor or if we, even if we're going to use the B word boss, you know, there are certain work, philo work philosophies that people have where it's like, well, you, you can't have an interpersonal relationship with this person. They're your employee. Yeah. They're your underling. They're your whatever derogatory corporate hierarchy word there is. And for me, I make it a point to just sit and hang out for a few minutes. Like yeah. well, I have to go back and forth. No, no, chill out for a few minutes. They can wait. How, how are things? Yeah. How are you doing? What's going on with you? You good? Everything good? Here's a cookie, right? Like, or, you know, we have a cafe at work every once in a while. I say, what do you want to drink? I'm going to get some, I'm going to get some drinks. What do you want? What's the harm in that? What's it going to cost me? 10 bucks? It, 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 it's morale, right? Yep. It boosts the morale and it shows people that you see them. And that $10, what may be $10 to you or I or anybody else, is a life-changing moment um, in which people feel, to feel appreciated at work is is huge. Um, I've heard uh, from multiple uh, professionals that you don't go to work to be appreciated. And I think that's a tough pill to swallow. You should be appreciated at work. Um, I've also heard from uh, from you know uh, professionals across the board um, um, that look at personal relationships at work as being um, a weakness um, or something that's frowned upon. No, our, if we work together, um, kindness and show kindness, we should have personal relationships. Uh, we we should care for one another. Um, work should not be hard. And that's something I didn't realize in my twenties, but I, I, I understood once I started working at the library that all work, work should not be hard. Life is hard already. What we do should not be hard. We should be coming together. As I said, as a family, as a community, as, as, as coworkers, um, and enjoying the space that we're in for 40 plus hours a week.
like we were saying off mic, you're going to spend more time with these people than you are with your own family. So you might as well at least try to enjoy their company a little bit. At least, and you're getting paid to enjoy their company. With your family, you often do it for free. So listen, there's a benefit there. Yeah, and you don't get much of a choice at home. Go ahead, Bob, I'm sorry. No, no, not at all. Isn't it so much more important now because I feel like right before COVID, we had it, you know, it was hard enough to, to be seen or allow people to be seen in the workplace. But COVID just did this digital separation. And yep. Everybody became a, a character on a screen, on a Brady Bunch screen. And you forgot that they're people. And then they, they started to work longer hours and they started to check their email on the weekends and after hours. And they became a number and they became a paycheck and they became a position in a seat and they lost the personality that, you know, that, that you worked with. And, and I don't think we've recovered from that yet in the physical workspace, even if you've gone back to work, I think it's just different. Now we expect people to do more. I'm expected to do more. Um, and a lot of times with less now because of budget constraints. And I yep. feel like we tend to see people even less now, or, or certainly tend to be seen less because of that COVID experience when we were just a box on a television. Yeah, I, I concur. You know, I think, um, I had a, a a meeting with my employees, um, you know, uh, yesterday actually, and I spoke to them about pace. You know, we we have our our lives are busy, um, work is busy, work is demanding, life is demanding. But while we're together here within this space, we have to be very conscious of pace um, because it seems like we're working in a um, at a pace oftentimes that, that leads to burnout or implosion or explosion, um, emotional explosion. So, um, you know, I, I want my employees to take breaks and to go walk about the, you know, I, I work downtown, go take a lap around this, you know, around the city, go get some coffee somewhere else, go take a mental break. Um, because your, your mental health, your physical health, your holistic health is so important. Um, and, and I see you as a person, not just an employee. And so working at a pace each and every day, I had to learn that in my, in my thirties, like in my twenties, I, I burnt myself out and I allowed organizations to burn me out by about 33, 34. I learned how to walk at a pace that, that was sustaining, um, for my, you know, for my personal and professional life. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because in the last couple of months, I've started practicing something called deliberateness. So what I mean by that is when I would walk in, it's like a battle plan, right? You have a battle plan and the second the first shot is fired, the whole plan goes to hell, right? And and yep. you're like, next thing you know, you're Robin Williams in the office. Oh, I have to do this. Then I have to do that. And I just did a really bad Robin Williams impression. But, you know, and you feel like the, the, the office or work takes over. And now you're trying to do 20 things at once. So one thing that I started practicing a couple of months ago is I literally wrote it down in several places on my desk. So when I see myself getting frantic, I said, stop and be deliberate. When you come in in the morning, don't say, oh, I gotta, I should start that and I should do this. No, go, go to your desk, turn your computer on, put the light on on your desk, sit down for a minute, get set up for your day. And then all the things that you see around you, make a list of what they are. So then you can tackle them one by one. So when other things do come in, you don't either A, forget about those things that you were so frantic about when you first walked in, or B, prioritize. 
and do things one at a time because we're all really good at multitasking and multitasking is probably the biggest death now for getting anything done with any amount of, of focus and attention. So for me, what you're talking about sounds like just like what I'm trying to do is just to try to be as deliberate as possible when I'm doing what yep. I'm doing. Yeah, you know, intentionality, uh, being deliberate is is huge. Um, you know, in, in my uh, library work, um, I would tell my uh, my my colleagues that I imagine the library almost as being Central Park, uh, New York City. Um, it's beautiful when you walk around in Central Park, but if you if you stare too long at something, you're going to see something's going to blow your mind, either good or bad. Um, but but in that pace of being mentally at Central Park, I control my pace, uh, regardless if it's beautiful, regardless if something crazy is going on in the corner. I have to mentally um, set my mind to walking in the park um, and, and making a, a deliberate choice, an intentional choice uh, to set my pace. Some days I did it great. Some days I didn't uh, do it. Uh, I didn't do it so well. But um, but, you know, I, I'm learning the importance of pace and, and um, routine um, and intentionality um, being deliberate each day. It also breeds confidence, too because you're not so frantic yep. trying to do 10 things at once. You're not so frantic. And um, it's not, it's not even that you're calm, but it's that you have boundaries and that your pace will allow you to achieve the things you want to achieve, but just at your own time. Um, I think sometimes we celebrate uh, in, in corporate culture and in organizations, we celebrate those who, who look busy, but we don't see if they are actually producing outcomes. They look busy. They're, they're running around like a like. In fact, that was a conversation at the library. Um, I remember I was I was brought into a supervisor's office and and she told me that um that she wanted me to have a look of worry upon my face while while the rest of my uh, colleagues are looking worried. And why are you looking so? As she said, why are you looking so cool uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, looking like the rest of us when it's busy? You know, I want to see the stress upon your face. And that's the culture that is celebrated. Um, being over, well, overworked, um, being uh, lacking outcomes um, and, and looking like you're doing more than what you're really doing. And and um, and burnout leads to momentary celebration that just isn't sustainable. And so, um, yeah, we have to walk at our own pace. And avoid the corporate speak. Yo, avoid it all. Avoid it all. Hell yeah. So one thing that we like to explore here on the podcast is diversity in our profession. At least where we're sitting on Long Island, there's not a lot of diversity in our profession in terms of, as, as a whole. You know, one of the biggest missing parts of the puzzle are males of color. We've discussed diversity with so many librarians of color, and it still makes us shake our head when we hear the stories about, you know, about those stories that crush our soul, about the horrible things that, that happen. But we also hear uplifting stories of how librarians of color have inspired others to join the profession because they saw someone just like them behind the desk and not that stereotype old white woman with the pearls and the pencil stuck in her hair and the glasses on a chain, that kind of shushing thing we're all trying to move so far away from. Yeah. So 
you know, it's really great that, that, you know, there can be inspiration there. But can you share first what it's like to be a person of color in the profession and in professional life and how we can attract more black men in this job? We love our female colleagues as well. Don't get me wrong, but males of color just don't get into the library field. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, you know, at, at times, um, you know, I, I'll speak from my experience. Um, you know, at it, it, times it was one um, to be a male of color um, because the, in the community I served, they saw me um, and, and, and they saw me as a father, as an educator, as an uncle, as a teacher, um, as a mentor. I, I wore so many different hats. It wasn't, as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't just a job position. It flowed within my life purpose. And so to be a male of color with any library, um, depending upon where you work, you're seen, you're visible. Um, you are unexpected inspiration. And um, and I love that. You know, it, I, I believe that that they saw that and when I speak of they, I mean the community, the kids, the families, the parents. They saw me in a way that I did not see myself. I didn't see myself as being so multifaceted or being so um, vital uh, to their lives or, or to anyone's life or, or within the community. But they helped me see that I was necessary. And so it could be extremely uplifting uh, being a male of color in the library while also being extremely isolated um, because not much, uh, you know, w when you are the... Uh, I wasn't the Jackie Robinson, but when you are the 27th black MLB player, you know, it, you, people still don't know who you are or much about your culture. Um, when I um, first entered into the library, it was assumed that I was from, by some, uh, that I was from urban America. And, and, and I got that a lot, that my urban experience would really help uh, uh, in working with these kids. I'm like, urban experience? I'm from, I'm from upper middle class suburb what urban experience are you referencing because i don't have you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it was assumed that i was you know boys in the hood um and then that and then i was from compton or south central baltimore or whatever it may be and i'm not trying to knock those areas but that wasn't me um it's a stereotype and it's a stereotype and and it's a um and you know it, it could lead to be isolating or even as i mentioned um being told that that um, I'm so cool, um, and and it was used in a derogatory sense um, because oftentimes black men could be looked at as being cool, but you're overlooking my intellect, you're overlooking my work experience, you're overlooking my expertise. You think I'm influential with people of color based upon me being cool versus me being kind, and so you know it, it's it could be isolating. Um, and, and, you know, and libraries need to be very intentional when getting uh, uh, men of color um, and, and really people of color in general. Intentionality when going to HBCUs and speaking, um, you know, to uh, educators, speaking to uh, um, uh, social workers, when speaking to uh, students who are um, entering into the workforce and sharing the good news about the library. Because historically, there has been bad news involving people of color at the library. And that's something that, um, that in my opinion, 
libraries tend to sweep under the rug or store in a book, in the proverbial book on the back shelf. Historically, libraries have not been kind to people of color and or women. And so, you know, there, there's some there's some explaining. It's either explaining to do um, historically or acknowledging, acknowledging the history of the libraries, understanding why some people of color do not feel comfortable in these spaces that historically have been shut off from us. And so, um, you know, I, I think the libraries can really succeed when it comes to acknowledgement and intentionality. If you're looking for uh, men of color, if you're looking for pe people of color, find where they are and speak to them, but also listen to them. Listen to them. And listen you, to why I'd be entering into the library field or or uh, library field or um, the public service field um, and, and be willing to have that dialogue while also be willing to create a space um, that will allow them to not only just exist, uh, not only to survive, but to thrive within the actual field. Well, that's, I think that's, and that's important. And I, I had a, a patron a few years ago who was a lovely black lady and we would get into conversations because look, I'll be the first to admit I'm a dumb white guy. Right. And we would have conversations about race, about ethnicity, about, you know, my family origins, her family origins. And the one thing she said to me that, that struck a chord because I've always known this, but it's not something that's really stated, is that white people do tend to think that black people all think the same way. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me dead in the eye. She says, do you think we all think the same thing? We don't. We all have different opinions and feel different ways and have biases and like certain things and don't like other things. We're just like anybody else. We're human. And I've always known that, but to have somebody verbalize it in such a way really struck me because, you know, being the, the dumb white guy, you know, you, you make assumptions about, of course, everybody thinks differently. But the fact that she painted it with the brush of color the way she did, it, it, it's hard to explain because it, it shocked me, but it didn't shock me. Obviously, everybody thinks the way they think. Everybody has their independent idea. But some of the my colleagues were like, I can't believe she said that. How can she say that? So, well, why can't she say that? And, you know, that's when you start getting into implicit bias and, you know, assumptions and things like that. And I, I had to s explain to them, she's right. She's a person. If we were all the same color, would it make a difference? If, yeah. if you know, it, in terms of, the the way a library approaches people of color, you know, it's February, it's Black History Month, we put out books and, and then it, February is over and then we don't think about it anymore. When really, this should be a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 12-month-a-year thing where we're thinking about all of the people in our community, whether you're Italian, Irish, African-American, Latino, Latina, Asian, Near East, Near East, Far East, Australian, or Aboriginal, or you know, First Nation people, or you know, Native Americans. We should be thinking about this all the time. But we also shouldn't assume that because somebody is of a particular race or creed or religion, 
they all act the same way. And I think that's a big mistake that happens not just in library land, but just in culture here in the United States in general. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I, I, I see that. And, um, and, you know, and I think everyone, we all do it um, because um, it's easier to believe that, that one group, one culture thinks, uh, thinks a certain way um, as opposed to sitting down and having a conversation and allowing your mind change and your in your perspective to change it's easier to step back and not engage in the research you know it, it takes accountability away um and and we have to take um as as you said before being deliberate um and, and being intentional to have the hard conversations that lead to easy moments libraries should be places um in my mind they should be places of exchanging information and not just through books, not just through internet, but also through conversations. They, they are growing into community spaces and libraries can't be, shouldn't be afraid um, to have, to be the place of these conversations. We're, we're losing places to have community. Our community centers uh, of, of the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even early 90s, we're, we're losing them. Uh, the internet has caused that and a lack of funding. But libraries are places that, that the community still, you know, rides at each day from 8 o'clock until whatever time, you know, a library closes. And, and we are a table. The library is a table that, brings, that can bring people together. But if we're not encouraging conversation, then we're stifling community growth. We're stifling individual growth. We're, stif we're stifling organizational growth. And so I hope that libraries, and in fact, that's one of the things I encourage and I work with libraries to establish um, is to be open to being the community's table um, and, and to create spaces and places for those conversations. Absolutely. And a place where people feel safe and, and yep. seen and heard and where everyone is welcome and accepted. And that's the way it should be. Absolutely. Yep. So, Aaron, music is uh, very important to you. And you said earlier that music is personal uh, to you, and we can definitely relate to that. Uh, and we know it's tied to Mufalai. So tell us about your music and how it moves you and where we can hear some of it. Wow. So that's that's interesting. I am so I am a, as I mentioned, I'm an introvert, and I've rarely put music out. I've I haven't put music out, um, you know, here recently. Um, but I am working on um, uh, releasing a bedtime album um, that I that I made for my children when they couldn't sleep. I would stay up. Uh, I would stay up uh, and, and and make uh, instrumentals. Uh, using various, uh, you know, whether it be keyboards or synthesizers. And I would just do it for my own therapy. Years later, I listened to it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is bedtime music. It's like lullaby music. And so that's going to be probably the first project that I put out. Um, just a, um, an album dedicated to my children, um, you know, of, of when they couldn't go to sleep, the music that I would make and that I eventually shared with them to listen to. Uh, which coincidentally helped them sleep. I didn't know. I did, you know, it, and it it worked. And so um, that's going to be the uh, the first uh, release I put out. Hopefully, I put it out 
uh, released it by June. But uh, for me, music is just it's expression. Um, I won't. I hope I never stop writing rhymes. I remember some of the first rhymes that I wrote um, as a fifth grader um, to you know rhymes I wrote yesterday and the importance of hip hop music and music in general, but specifically hip hop music in my life and in providing me a lane um, to be my own poet to to tell my own story, even if nobody heard it. And so for me, music is a songwriting is a expression. Um, but as an introvert, it's also a, an emotional release and a creative release for me to, um, to you know, the details, really the soundtrack of my life. That's really, really I cool. I guess we can't put you on the spot to share some of those rhymes, can we? Oh, my gosh. Um, let me see if I can think of something. Um, um, oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I have one that's sort of in my head. Um, uh, rap God that's past odd. I'm not a deity. I'm a human mankind and listens to God's frequency. Painting 16s with Sistine Chapel scenery with a devil on my shoulder talking suicide immediately. Ain't no defeating me. Bon appetit. Eatery food for thought. Rhyme these moves. I talk so easily. And so those are all rhymes. Like that's a rhyme that I have in my head. That's not even worth me putting down on paper because my paper rhymes are so much more intimate. That's just a lyrical, as I say, a lyrical exercise of writing a rhyme constantly in my head and just watching it grow that I would never release to like the public as a song. But it's just, it's an exercise, almost a writing, a creative writing exercise. So that's one of them. That was really cool. That is really great. Right off the top of his head, too. It's amazing. Yeah, right off. Which means he's been I, doing it a hundred, a hundred times today, probably, right? <laughs> <laughs> You may be like the fifth, you know, the fifth and sixth people ever to hear me rhyme. So, um, but now that's what I about today. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll continue to add to it, and I have more than one in my head, and I write them on my phone. And but, but if you make it into the black notebook, that's when the real songs happen in my head on my phone. Those are those are throwaways. I wish you lived closer because we have a recording studio at work. I'd love to put that together yeah, for you. I'd like to see some of the stuff that's in the black book. That's pretty yeah. Cool. Black book is incredible, and I'm, I'm not a braggart, but the black book is incredible. Wow, that is really cool. That's some legacy for leave for your kids too, right? I have probably over five thousand songs sitting ten feet to the left of me in a in a in a uh, in a chest. Um, I have I have probably like three thousand instrumentals. You know, it, it's a it's a treasure trove that no one knows about really. So, you know, one day I'll get the courage to release some. Make sure you digitize some of that too, Aaron. I would hate to see it ever get destroyed. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That, you're right. You're right. You're right. Even if you just take pictures and put them in your Google Drive, like something that would be able to be recreated again. It's another story of my life that I'm finding value in. And so um, you're, you're, you're especially, you know, you're, you're correct. Um, much like the podcast, these lyrics of, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, eight years ago, it's another piece of the story that, you know, I, that I definitely want to want to share. You know, Pull that out of it and make sure, uh, I don't even know if we could be helped to get you some digitization software or something, but, or a scanner. We could send, maybe we can send you a scanner. You could just get it, get it somewhere where it's going to live, you know, longer than it, than it will in a book. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. And the thing is, I have a scanner. I'm looking at it right here. I just, I, I need to be, uh, I need to be more deliberate 
and intentional um, and making sure, yeah, I definitely, you know, copy that work and have it uh, because it could always. Because I want to hear it. You know, we want to hear it and see it. So that's, I'm, I'm just being selfish. <laughs> I want to <laughs> see, see that stuff. So, that'd yo, cool. that's this year. If I could release an album, um, a, a, a 40 year old uh, 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 black male from the suburbs, from Springfield, Ohio, to release an album that, that talks about my experiences of, of a 40 year old that would be amazing. And so that's the goal this year, release an album um, from my perspective now as a 40 year old. It's going to be amazing. Let us know if we can help in any capacity. Man. Yeah. I mean, even if you do part of it in spoken word too, you know, you know, and I was going to say too, it's in this digital world we live in now, like even with Apple, they have like um, a journal that you can, you write in digitally and all I kept thinking was, you're writing this down on paper. How amazing is that? Because what happens if one day we lose our digital ability and all that stuff is gone? You you did it the right way. You wrote it down. And then if you digitize it, you know, you got it. But you can take those books and then lock them away or, you know, put them somewhere safe. But you did it right, man. You really did. There's, there's still something about writing, uh, writing using a pen. And I'm very specific, a black notebook with a uh, with a mechanical pencil. Um, there's something about writing in which I, I reveal more of my soul um, musically. Now, I when I write, when I actually type, oh, I'm sorry. When I type, um, I, I've also been working on a book. Uh, and so when I type, I, I'm now able to type and, and, and create um, stories of my past. But when it comes to music, for some reason, the writing portion of it, um, it definitely, you know, aids in that release. So, um, you know, that's that's my preferred method. But I could also, you know, I, I I will put some notes in my phone and things like that. They're cool. They're they're nice verses, but they're nothing like when I write it with a pencil. Yeah, there's something about the physicality of actually holding an implement and writing it down. It's like you've earned it or you've made it. Mm-hmm. Like the same way you would. It's one thing to do a 3D design and print it on a printer. It's another to craft something with your hands. Yes, and, and and it's for me it's very nostalgic because you know growing up and being fourteen or twelve or eleven, I didn't have a phone to type them in. I didn't have a computer, you know, sitting in my backpack to to put it in. And so when I when I write in that black notebook, um, I go back to being ten, eleven years old and the excitement of of writing in a in a new black notebook with a new mechanical pencil. I go back there with the passion. Um, and so, you know, it, it's just one of those things, much like vinyl records, you know, taking it out the sleeve, the process is what makes it beautiful in some regard. It's almost like you work to earn to get to that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I heard from around the way that you had a famous babysitter. Yes. <laughs> you yeah. want to share about that? Yes, yeah, so Omarosa Manigault, for those who don't know who was, um, Omarosa was on The uh, Apprentice, and she also worked with uh, President Trump momentarily while he was in the office. Uh, she was my babysitter um, growing up. Um, she went to Central State University, which is also my alma mater, and she um, was a uh, Miss CSU um, for our university. And I admire, um, I call we call her Oni. Um, I admire Omarosa or Oni so much because she 
she came from Youngstown, Ohio. And for those who don't know about Youngstown, Ohio, that's a tough place to live and to survive and to thrive. And, and she made a choice, a conscious choice to pursue success. And so, um, you know, Omarosa is known for being a villain, for, for being, you know, outspoken, uh, for being TV's reality show victim uh, or villain. Um, but I see her as such a success in life because she she came not from nothing, but her environment um, could have really taken her down. But she made a choice to create success. And so Oni or Omarosa Manigal, yeah, that is uh, that was my babysitter. That's wow. really cool. So how how did you feel when she she started going on TV? That must have been kind of weird, right? Sort of, you know, it was sort of weird. Um, it was sort of it, it was sort of weird because you know it's it, it was it's the babysitter, but also <laughs> it's amazing to see that people know Omarosa and that she has established herself. Whether people love her or a lot of people hate her, she has established herself as um, a, a successful speaker, a successful businesswoman, um, and in in a mogul in some regard, um, and and it's. So, you know, I'm I'm proud of her um, that she, like I said, she made a conscious choice to be successful, even when success was not around. her. And so her backstory is amazing. Her, you know, her in-betweens, how do you go from Youngstown to the White House? That could be a story in, a, in itself, you know. And so, um, yeah, Oni is um, is amazing and, you know, definitely proud. Um, and she was a good babysitter, too. <laughs> she let you stay up late, eat some cookies, and yo, she she was yeah, she was uh, you know, she was the beauty queen babysitter. I mean, how can you go wrong with that? Right? Yeah, sure. That's such a cool story. I had to bring it up. I'm sorry. It was just no doubt <laughs> that that was one of the cool things, man. So you know, we're really appreciative that you came on the podcast today to talk about us all these topics because you know these continue to be issues not just for Library Land but for you know workplaces in general. And, you know, we really wanted to thank you for, for coming on today and talking about that. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be asking Aaron our top 10 library questions or what we like to call the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. And we always give credit and thanks to our friend Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list of questions we ask all of our guests. So we will be right back. We are back with Aaron Whitfield, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. Okay, you ready? Absolutely. Okay. What did you want to be when you were a child? Wow. Okay, this is a good one. Um, I wanted to be Daryl Strawberry and Superman. Um, so um, from Ohio, you know, and you're you you wanted to be Daryl Strawberry? I don't know how that happened. Daryl Strawberry and the Mets were. Something, um, you well, know, they were and, something. <laughs> they, yeah, they were definitely. Um, and then that, and then that changed a bit toward the nineties to want to be Michael Jordan, um, mm -hmm. you know. But uh, but as a as a as a kid, 
Um, I didn't want to be an athlete. Um, you know, I, I would say I wanted to be a writer um, and work for uh, a music publication, a magazine. Uh, once I really started to understand my talents and dreams, like that was it. Like if I could write for Vibe magazine or a music publication, that would have been my sort of dream existence living in New York, in New York City. That would have been beautiful for me. So, yeah, that was it. So, Aaron, what, what's your first memory of a library and who do you think brought you to the library for the first time? Mm. Um, my, my first uh, memory of a library um, was in preschool. Um, there was a library being built right across the way from um, my preschool. And, and, and I and I will watch it each day um, as it was constructed. Um, years later, we're moving back to Columbus. Um, I worked. That was the very first library, first and only library I worked at called the Carl Road library so i was able to work in my childhood library right across from my preschool and so um you know that is um that that location that space is always near and dear to me and when i think about the library i think about the community i think about going in on my first day um and seeing one student um justine who i knew from a previous work experience and uh she and her friends were sitting down at the table eating uh, jollof rice. They were from, they're from, uh, their parents are from Ghana and they didn't know me from anybody um, aside from Justine. But when I walked over and said hello, they offered me some rice um, to eat with them. And that was the start of understanding the importance of community and sharing and investment in the library. And it just changed my life. So I think about, you know, those kids, her, um, and that's in that special day. Well, you kind of hit the next question too, which is when did you decide to work in a library? You know, I, you know, here's the deal. I don't know if I decided or life decided for me when, um, ironically, when I was, when I was applying to be, uh, you know, for the job, um, I really needed a job. It was during the, uh, coming out of the economic depression, uh, or, or, or yeah, I would, I would call it depression in, in 2009, a recession, uh, 2009, 2010. And I really needed a full-time job. And, um, and the library that I wanted to work at was closer, which would save money on the $4, whatever 50 cent gas was at the time per gallon. Um, and then I applied at the library that um, Carl Rowe Library, which was much farther. I did not want to work there. Um, I the interview. I was sure I did not get the job. And they called me the next day and said, hey, when do you want to start? And so I believe that the library chose me. And then I eventually found my way within it. Um, and, you know, and I'm, and I'm, you know, quite thankful for that. Well, Aaron, who do you think your favorite fictional librarian is, if you can think of one? That's a great question. Um, I could really only pull a couple out of my mind, uh, which would be, um, oh, what was his name from Shawshank Redemption? I think it was Mills. Um, he was an old librarian. Who walked yeah. Around. Yeah. Said, Meeks, right. Was it Meeks? Something like that. Yeah. Um, but I'm going with Lieutenant Bookman from Seinfeld. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'll go with Lieutenant Bookman, um, because of his persistence in getting the book and paying the fine. And it reminds me of, um, of how you know libraries in the in the 90s were all about the fines um and so yeah i'll I go with lieutenant bookman yeah he was like the dragnet 
of the library, right? Yeah. yeah. The library police. Library police. You need them. <laughs> All right. So kind of a weirder question for you because of what you're doing now, but what would you be doing if you weren't, I mean, the, the traditional question is what would you be doing if you weren't working in libraries, but you can kind of answer that question, right? Yeah. Yo, I, I would still be doing much of what I do. Um, I mean, of course, what I'm doing now is building community. Whether I'm in a library, whether I'm, you know, at at a, uh, a sheriff's office, whether I'm at Ohio State University or any any other place, I would be building community and establishing places and spaces for people to meet, learn, um, and grow and evolve together. Um, so that's what I would be doing. And what do you think your favorite section is of the library? Oh man, uh, um, I will go with. Um, this is probably gonna. I'm a nonfiction person, um, so I'm, I'm in between DVDs, documentaries, and and um, and autobiographies. Um, my favorite book uh, is is Life Itself um, um, by uh, Roger Ebert because um, it's just written so beautifully. But I tend to be a document documentary buff and so you'll catch me all the way back where the dvds are depending upon your location but any type of like autobiography where i can learn about someone um and their perspective on life and community and and and, um you know that's where you'll probably find me so if you had infinite space and budget what would you add to your local library Oh my goodness! If I had infinite space and budget, um, besides the Aaron Whitfield wing of extraordinary, yeah, the recording studio in the in the pickleball courts, um, I would have, um, I would create more space for intentional community gatherings. Um, um, you know, it's great to have a public space for computers and or space for. Uh, you know, kids and in in getting their homework done, but um, but places where communities can intentionally gather, groups can intentionally gather, and almost be that bridge in between, um, and and, and just you know, increase civic engagement and seeing the library is not just a place of getting knowledge, but also exchanging knowledge. So I would I would definitely increase more community space, um, for building relationships and things of that nature. That's great. So, so what do you love? Absolutely love about libraries. You know, I I, I love the. Um, it's going to sound redundant, but I love the community. I love you know when working there to see people from different nationalities, different walks of life. Um, you know, from the eight a.m. nine a.m. Um, uh, man who I remember who was struggling with alcoholism, who will walk in after a long night looking beat up but he just needed a place to stay and for someone to acknowledge him to the coming in after school at <laughs> two thirty. um I, I miss and i enjoyed seeing the the people of various walks of life uh you know come into the library the library is a unique space where everybody comes in um and um and you know and and it's just for me, it showed me really what diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging is all about. How do you treat the the alcoholic um, at eight o'clock, nine o'clock? Will you treat him hopefully with the same amount of grace and love that you do the six year old at three o'clock? 
that you do the patron that comes in at 859 wanting to get a book, even though closing time is at nine o'clock. It, it shows you humanity. And so, um, you know, that's why I really appreciate it about the library. So what's the strangest thing that's ever happened in your career, library or otherwise? Doesn't necessarily have to be the worst thing. Um, the strangest thing that happened to me in my career or otherwise, um, in, in, in a library, um, you know, I, I think the strangest thing and pr- perhaps the most, I'll go most sentimental s- slash strange and, and the, the unexpected for me is that I didn't expect to find my purpose at a library. I expected to find my paycheck. I expected to find maybe some people but I didn't expect working in a library to change the way I look at my life, to change the way that I see myself to um, to add to me during a time of need. And so, you know, that for me is the strangest thing out of all places. Why this place? Why, why, why this job? And it was just meant to be. And so that is perhaps the strangest thing. I didn't think I would find my purpose um, in a library, within the stacks, within the books, within the people. So do you have a favorite patron or student that comes to mind who's left a lasting impression on you? You know, if I said a favorite student, they will all be mad at me if, if they found <laughs> it. Uh, right. If I say a favorite, a favorite student. Um, but, you know, but I, I'll definitely share a couple of them from um, – from you know, from you know, a colleague, um, a colleague of mine who told me um, that I that I've changed her life, you know, and, and impacted her life in a positive way, um, and that I am special. You know, I'm I'm special. You know, like that that blew my mind. Um, so you know, and and I appreciate her wholeheartedly for that too. Uh, you know, another student who is now she's graduating and and it's just bring, you know, in my mind, she, she's still a little girl who I will walk around with and hold her hand as a six year old. And we will walk around the library. Um, and, and today she calls me dad, even though I'm I'm clearly not her father, but but she calls me father and she calls me dad and, and she's my daughter. And so looking at people like her or there's so many, um, you know patrons, customers, uh, but I call them my, my library kids um, that just are my favorites. You know, I, I have favorites. I tell them, like, I, yeah, I, I play favorites. If you're my favorite, you're going to get so much more. I love everybody, but if you're my favorite, you'll get it all. Awesome. That is so cool. So our final question, what are people without library cards missing out on? You, you're missing out on knowledge, not just when it comes to uh, intellectual knowledge uh, that can be found within a book, but social knowledge that can be found within a community. Um, the library opens you up to a space and a place that uh, um, that when you peer up from your book, when you take time to to turn that page, you notice someone who may look different from you, who may uh, who may look the same as you. They have a story too, and oftentimes their story is greater. Um, or just as significant as the book that you could be holding. And so, you know, for those who have a library card, 
um, you know, I want to encourage them, go to a library, read a story, but also, you know, be willing and be daring to sit down with somebody else and hear their story. Um, because even though they may not be a published author, they are a valuable community member and their story, much like any published author, uh, deserves to be told and listened to and honored. Aaron Woodfield, this has been amazing. We can't thank you enough for coming on today. No, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, to your listeners, um, you know, I, I thank you for your time, you know, check me out on Instagram, um, at black introvert podcast. Um, or on my uh, website, uh, which would be I am uh, Mufalai, um, I A M M U F A L I dot com. Um, if you're a library professional, I would love to come and speak to your staff about uh, community engagement, um, uh, team building, and uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, no, thank you both uh, from the bottom, middle, and top of my heart. This has been beautiful. This has been awesome. Great. Thanks so much for coming on. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of any other library. See you next time.